you could put the first picture up for me. This is, uh, anyone recognize this? Anyone know what the, which mountain this is? I'll give you a clue. It's in Snowdonia. Trif- very good. It's uh, Trifan, which is apparently the 15th highest mountain in Wales and uh, the only one in Snowdonia that I've ever climbed. Um, has anyone been up it? Anyone been up Trifan? Yeah. It's, it's pretty distinctive looking because it sort of stands apart from all the other sort of peaks. It's not one of these multi-peak mountains. It's just there. And um, it's actually 918 meters high. You needed to know that, didn't you? And as you can see, it has a very striking shape. Now, I've climbed this mountain twice. I'm, I'm really no mountain climber um, or, or an outdoorsy type of person at all. But... Uh, I did climb this uh, a few years ago, and my experience was, was of this one, and I guess it's pretty much the same for all of them, is you can see what happens is there's a lake down here, and you park your van or your car on this road, and when you're down there, you can't really get a sense of, of anything. <laughs> um, and so you start to go up, and you go up, a few, you go up this staircase first, and it's, it's quite steep to start with. And, um, and to be honest, my experience was that the first... 10, 15 minutes of climbing a mountain like Trifan are really hard work. And what's happening is your body is getting over the initial shock of what you're asking it to do. <laughs> well, maybe not yours, but mine anyway. Um, and so, you, you know, the first 10, 15 minutes are pretty hard grind, and you get to the top of your first section, and you're just <sighs> exhausted. You stop and have a breather, and you... Um, and you turn around, and, I, and at this point I'm wondering, you know, what have I done, and uh, am I going to make this... <laughs> Um, and then you turn around and you start to see a bit of a view emerging, of the, particularly of here, of this lake. And you suddenly realize that you've got a different perspective on everything. And you have a breather and you think, oh, this is, this is interesting. And so you have a little break and you have your first sort of stop for a bit of drink and, or whatever. And then, and then you carry on. And, and usually you've risen above the ground level and it, and it kind of gives you a renewed energy for the view that you might get from the top of the mountain. And you sort of think, actually, this, this might be worth it. We went with one guy who um, was so unfit, he got to the top of the first 20 minutes and threw up. I mean, he was, <laughs> you know, and, and it was quite a lot of convincing to say, no, come on, this is going to be worth it. But as you set off again, your body's got used to what you're doing, and, uh, and you're sort of beginning to get a vision for, this is going to be worth climbing, because when I get to the top, it's going to be incredible. And that's kind of what Trafan is like. There's... Um, there's another view of it from the other side. And uh, did I put... And that's a little bit what Romans is like, actually. Um, in our journey through Romans, we're just, I think we're just beginning to approach that first breathing point. You know, that, that first... We're getting over the initial shock of, God, this is quite steep, you know. And uh, we're beginning to just see a different perspective and what we, could, what we might see even better from, from the view at the top as the, as the gospel and how we relate to it comes into view. And I'd really encourage you in this. I don't know if you've managed to catch all of the, the talks so far, but they're all online and the notes are all available. And um, I'd really encourage us to go home and just read these passages through for ourselves and take a bit more time to maybe work through the notes and just think these things through. And I did also um, suggest a couple of books. They're not on these notes, but on the, the notes from the last two weeks are some suggestions of books that you may want to, uh, to, to grab. And life group leaders also have a group study that you might want to use, and I've got a few spare ones, so come and see me if that's of any use to you. But we are sort of beginning to turn the corner, and in terms of our journey through Romans, we've done the introduction. Last week we talked about this, this section, God's wrath, and why everyone needs the gospel, and today's reading spans this one and the next one, which is how 
we're just getting into the next part of how it is that God starts to save people. Now, this is one of the major junctions in the book of Romans. Okay, I'm going to focus mainly around the last section from verses 21 to 26, where, God, where Paul starts to talk about God's righteousness and how that works. And as you'll realize, that stands in quite stark contrast to the material from last week and the previous two chapters. And so just to recap that ground and get us up to where we've got to, we started off um, this, this journey in Romans 1 and at 16 and 17, which is on your sheets, where it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it's the power of God that brings the salvation to everyone who believes. And in 17, he goes on and says, the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed, revealed by faith. Righteousness of God. And he introduces this concept of righteousness. He introduces us to this power of God. The fact that, this, this, that, that everyone through the gospel can be declared in right standing with God. Through faith. But before we can really understand the significance of that, God then, Paul then takes us back into sin and wrath and, and all of that. And all, all of last week's stuff and some of this week's stuff. And I've kind of... List it out for you. Now, one of the ways of describing this, you, this is just an analogy, it's just a metaphor, but one of the ways that you could describe this, and somebody's described it, is as a bit like a, a diamond on a plain black cloth. The diamond is the gospel, the beautiful gift, the shining righteousness of God. It sparkles and it gleams and it radiates light. And in order to fully appreciate that, you need a really dark background. And it's almost like Paul spent the first two chapters just describing what that dark background is. It's pretty dark. And at this point, verse 21, he says, but now. And in our family, if it was just the but, I would say but, and that's a very big but, but we wouldn't say that in our family because we just like that kind of joke. But Paul says, but now, but now. And it's almost like he, ta-da, takes out this shining jewel. The table below shows how that whole section works. We looked at A and B last time. We looked at how it is that Paul says that unreligious people need the gospel and how it is that religious people need the gospel, critical moralizers, how you can't point the finger at somebody else in judgment. I'm not coming over C today, but section C talks about about the Jews specifically. Um, we don't have time to develop this point, but it's an important point to note. And just that, you know, Paul is talking specifically, even more specifically for his Jewish audience in C, and he says, your religious practices are not going to save you. And in fact, he, he uses this phrase, a circumcision of the heart. We haven't got time to go into this today, but I just wanted to flag it up. It's not just the outward sign, he says, that makes you a Jew. It's what's a proper Jew. It's what's going on on the inside. But listen, Paul's not totally down on the Jews. Several times in the passage, he talks about how the gospel is first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. In 3 verse 2, he says, the Jews have been trusted with the very words of God. Paul, the, the Jews are precious to Paul. He was brought up one. They were his race. They're close to his heart and they're close to God's heart. And again, that's an important point, but it's a theme that we don't have time to explore at the minute, but it is one to be aware of in today's climate. Um, despite all that, Paul's very clear that simply being Jewish or going, keeping the law, going through the religious motions is not enough 
for salvation. Whether you're God's chosen people or not, Paul says, just like the Gentiles, everybody needs a Messiah. Everybody needs Jesus and the gospel is for everyone. So picking up on today's reading from 3 and verse 9, this is kind of the conclusion of this whole section. And it's kind of called, No One is Righteous. And that's why I've got three points to make today. And this is the first one. The first is, No One is Righteous. The second is, the righteousness of God. And the third is, the, what that cost Jesus. But just looking back at this, No One is Righteous, Judy's read this whole passage for us. And Paul is kind of adding the final touches to this black cloth. He's summing up the whole argument about wrath and judgment. And as if to, it's a bit like a lawyer presenting a case in court. He said, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. And then as if to sort of present his final bit of evidence, there's this whole section where Paul, it's, um, let me just see. I've got it here. It's verse 10, from verse 10 onwards. And there's about eight verses worth of, and they're all quotes from the Old Testament. And Paul is quoting from the scriptures that the Jews would know. He's quoting from Psalm 14 and Ecclesiastes and Isaiah and Psalm 36. And he's, it's pretty damning. And he's kind of finishing off, he's polishing off his argument saying, no one is righteous. There is no one. Not the Gentiles, not the religious, not the Jews, no one. Under, we're all under sin, Paul says, and no one will be declared righteous in the sight of God. No one will be declared righteous by observing the law. And he, he really drives it home. No one's up to it, he's saying. No one gets the perfect score. No one makes it in terms of the judgment and the standards of God. And the very existence of the law, Paul says, it doesn't save us. It just makes us all the more conscious of our sin. Let's consider the nature of that sin for a minute. Sin is three things. Sin is universal. We've read in verse 23. It's a pretty well-known verse. This is probably the verse that I know from growing up in the church. This is a verse, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's a verse I was taught as a kid. Paul is very clear. Sin is a reality for every single one of us. Or as High School Musical put it, we're all in this together. As far as God is concerned, none of us have matched his standards. Now, we might think of ourselves as being basically good. We're trying hard to present a decent outward appearance. Perhaps we do that in reality. Perhaps we do that through our social media pages. You know, we're trying to basically get across the idea that we're, we're okay, aren't we? I mean, I'm okay, aren't I? I'm not a terrible person. I'm not, I'm not a bad person. The truth is we all have stuff that we're not very proud of and stuff that we'd rather forget. Now, I don't know if you've heard of the author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories. Well, apparently, he was, he was quite a practical joker, this guy. And one day, he mischievously decided to send telegrams to 12 of his friends. And these friends were all kind of senior establishment figures in society. And so for a joke one day, Conan Doyle decided he'd just send them all telegrams. And in the telegram, it said, flee at once, all is discovered. <laughs> and within 24 hours, 10 of them had left the country. What would happen if, some, if you got a telegram like that or an email? Flee at once, all is discovered. The psychiatrist, Dr. Carl Meninger, wrote a best-selling book called Whatever Became of Sin. And in it, he recalled a sunny day in September 1972 when a stern-faced, plainly-dressed man stood still 
on a busy street corner in Chicago. And as pedestrians hurried by on their way to lunch or business, he would solemnly lift his right arm and point out to the person near him and state loudly one word, guilty. The effect of this on the passing strangers was extraordinary. They would stare at him, hesitate, look away, look at each other, then at him again, and then hurriedly continue on their way. Guilty. Guilty. One guy turned to another and said, how did he know? How did he know? I wonder what it is that we're carrying around with us that we don't want anyone else to know about. I wonder what it is that we live in fear of others finding out about. You know, what if a video was made of our lives in this day and age? They made a video of your life. It's possible, isn't it? And they broadcast it on the internet 24-7. The good and the bad. The stuff we're happy about remembering and the stuff we'd rather forget. Imagine this video was there. Would we be okay with that? Because God knows what we've done. He knows who we are and there's no point in hiding from him. And actually, the truth is that God has the right to point to every one of us and go, guilty, guilty, guilty. In his mercy, he chooses not to do that, but he has the right to do it. So sin is universal and it affects everyone. I heard somebody say, we're sin individuals. I'm not quite sure I like thinking like that because it's not helpful, but it's true that sin affects all of us. And sin has its consequences. Sin is never private. It mostly never just stops with us. It affects other people. The sins that Paul listed in Romans 1 that we talked about last week are actions and attitudes that affect other people. And mostly not in a good way. There's always someone on the receiving end of sin. There's always someone who's being damaged. Maybe that's been you. You've been on the receiving end of someone else's harmful actions. They've caused a lasting effect. Or maybe you've been on the other end of it. Maybe your actions have caused other people pain. There's a, um, a theory that scientists will tell you about called the chaos theory. And it, what it, what it, they have this concept of the butterfly effect. And it describes how minor things done in one place can have major repercussions far away. So, for example, a butterfly flapping its wings on one side of the world, can cause a tiny change in the atmosphere which starts a chain of events that ultimately redirects a tornado on the other side of the world. Now, I am not a scientist, and I don't know if that theory has been 100% proved, but it certainly seems to be a popular theory. And I think it's the same with sin. You know, we might demand cheap clothes from our high street, which means that some poor people really suffer in sweatshops on the other side of the world to make them. We might click on something on the internet that results in somebody else's mum being really degraded. We might have temper outbursts, which ultimately result in our family or our colleagues tiptoeing round us in fear and anxiety, walking on eggshells. Like we discussed last week, the consequences of sin are far-reaching. And ultimately, ultimately, they reach as far as our judgment before God. And without the gospel, Paul reminds us, we do face judgment. Both a temporal judgment, as in now, as he hands us over to our stuff that we talked about last week, 
And here's a big word, an eschatological judgment, which just means an ultimate end of time, once and for all day, when Jesus will come and judge every thought and every word and every deed. So sin is universal and sin has consequences, but the really good news is sin is also utterly, utterly forgivable. And that's where we move on to this jewel, the free gift of righteousness, the but now of verse 21. All of that was in the past. That's what it's like. That's what the world's like, Paul says. But now. And I've actually reproduced these five or six verses on your sheet for you. And I've picked out in bold the word righteousness because it comes throughout this passage and also the word justified. Let's read it again. The righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, as he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Before we couldn't do this, before no one is righteous, no one makes it, everyone fails, everyone's in the same boat, but now, but now, Paul says, the righteousness of God, and we make that shift from wrath to righteousness. See how many times that word is used. And Paul uses both these words, righteous and justified. And it can seem a bit confusing, but the, the truth is they both come from the same Greek roots. Okay? They both, the, the, the Greek word diakos, it means, it's a sort of legal word. And it means to be acquitted, to be free to go, to be not guilty of the charges. And Paul's also has roots, it also has roots in this Hebrew word, tzedek, which talks about living in community with God. So think of righteousness like this. Think of righteousness as being like the validating performance record which opens doors for us. I'll give you an example. You go for a job. You send in a CV that lists your skills and experience. Righteousness is having the right skills and experience for that job. You've got a previous performance record. You've met a required standard. Another example would be maybe that you're trying to get into a particular course or maybe a school or a college and you have to sit a test, an entrance test or an entrance exam. Righteousness is when you get the score that's perfect or good enough to get you in. Some of us, some people I know, over the last few months, in August in fact, were anxiously waiting to see if they got their A-level results, to see if they would make the course that they want to get into university. That's a little bit like righteousness. And as far as I know, every religion or culture believes that something like that goes on between us and God. That our relationship with God is based on some kind of performance record some kind of moral or spiritual performance record. And that if we are good enough, if our score comes up to the mark, 
then we will get in. And most of those religions, we wait anxiously and we wait hopefully and we're sort of nervous and we say, are we going to get in? Are we going to get in? Are we going to get in? Some of you students were maybe, this is where you were at over the summer. Am I going to make it? Have I made the grade? It's not like that with God, Paul says. The first, for the first and the last time in history, the righteousness, the performance record doesn't come from us. It comes from God. It's his perfect record. He offers it to us completely free of charge. So we can pass the test. We can achieve entry. We can gain acceptance, not because of anything we've done, but all because of what he's done. It's a free gift, and all we have to do is accept it. That's what this passage is saying. We're exchanging our scores. He uses the word justified. You've possibly heard this before, but it's a fantastic little play on words. That when he says we're justified, it means it's just as if I'd not sinned. It's just as if I'd not sinned. It's just as if I'd not done it. He swaps his score for ours. This is a remarkable and powerful message. How does that happen? How does it work? How does he do it? Does he just let us off? Surely God, being the just judge that he is, can't ignore sin completely. Someone has to pay, right? There has to be justice. It's like he imposes the sentence, but then he pays the fine. I looked this up on the internet. I found a couple of examples of real-life stories where this has happened. I found one in the UK from uh, just this summer. A senior magistrate who pulled 40 quid from his own shirt pocket to pay the court fine for a destitute asylum seeker. And now he's, now he's resigned his position and been suspended. He's been told off for doing what he did. And basically what he did was he was judging this guy. There were some more costs needed. You know, there were delays and all of that stuff. And this 65-year-old magistrate, who'd already seen this young guy in his 20s, he'd already defaulted on his charges. He, he said, it's 40 quid. I'll just pay it myself, which he did. And something's going on about that. He couldn't cancel the justice. He couldn't just cancel the fine. That Justice has to be done for the law to be right. So what he did instead is he pays the fine himself. Let me read to you this couple of these verses from the message, which is a different translation of the Bible. I love this. It says, since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, that's both us and them, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious life God wills for us, God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he puts us in right standing with himself. A pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. And he did it by the means of Jesus Christ. So it's a free gift that he exchanges with us. Our sin is universal. No one makes it. No one is righteous. But the free gift of God is righteousness. And my third point this morning is what that cost Jesus. You see, it was an amazing free gift, but it wasn't free to him. It was free to us. It cost him something enormous. The life of his son, the pain of watching Jesus go through suffering, the pain of watching Jesus die on the cross. And the stain of sin doesn't just fade away or disappear with time. As far as God's concerned, it needs cleansing, it needs satisfying, it needs dealing with. So our sin affects our relationship with him. You know, he's so pure 
and holy. He can't look at sin. And that presents him with a problem when he looks at us because we're full of sin. Can't look at sin. So he's going to struggle to be be close to us, isn't he? His holiness means that before we can be with him, our sin has to be cleansed. His justice or righteousness means that our sin has to be punished. That's how the law works. So God isn't just sitting there kind of crossing his fingers and hoping it all fades away. Something's got to be done to deal with it, to get rid of the sin. Something's got to be done that's permanent and final so that he doesn't have to take that sin into account anymore when he looks at us. And Paul says that is the the sacrifice that pays for this sin is the blood of Jesus. And he uses the word in verse 24, redemption. All are justified freely by his grace through redemption that came through Christ Jesus. Now, the word redemption, it describes the act of regaining something. It's making a payment to exchange for something. It's clearing a debt. It's paying a ransom to free somebody or liberate someone. That's where the word comes from. These are words that the Jews would know. They're part of their culture. They're part of the Old Testament. And Paul is using them and saying, this is what to explain how the gospel works. This is what God has done. He's reclaimed you. He's redeemed you. He's bought your freedom. He's bought you back. There are the words, redemption. I've put them in red here. The other word he uses is atonement in verse 25. He says he's presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, I I get that these are all big words. I'm sorry, I'm doing my best. You can't really get away from them in this passage. I'm trying to explain them. Atonement literally means at-one-ment. He's making things right. He's bringing things so that that we and him are at one. Now, this is a tricky translation. And actually, the, the the Greek suggests some other possible words which are even more complex than atonement. And I've written them on your page for you. You can listen and then you don't have to remember them. Okay. But one of them is expiation and one of them is propitiation. Okay. And what they basically mean is, as it says there, expiation means making amends or putting things right. The covering over of our guilt and sin. And propitiation means making up for something you did wrong. Easing of the design wrath. So... We'll stick with atonement, shall we, for now? But actually, that propitiation, that word, you'll you'll read those words in some other translations, by the way. But that word propitiation is the same word that was used in the Old Testament when it comes to the law, okay, that that guides how the Jews would um, would worship in the temple. And uh, as you know, it was all about blood and it was all about sacrifice. Okay? And every year there's a day of atonement. I've got it, I found this really handy little diagram on the internet. That's not that one, that's this one. This is a little diagram of the temple, the Jewish temple. And if you look at the top half first, this is what would happen. Oh, do you know what? There's some arrows missing from that that aren't going to show up on here. What a shame. Okay, just imagine, for me, that you've got this arrow going in that way. Where it says sins, there's a red arrow coming up here and it stops at the altar of incense. And every day or every week... As part of worship, the priest would bring the sins of the people and he would make sacrifices before God for the sins of the people. And then every day, every year, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would go through a ritual where he would sprinkle blood, that's the red line, the red arrows here, on 
the Ark of the Covenant. He would just go into that holy place once a year and the arrow goes that way. The sins go outwards. And it's almost like what's going on there. Sorry, that doesn't make much sense without the arrows. Forgive me. It's almost like what happens is that regularly the priests make these sacrifices. They pay for the sins of the people. And once a year, God says, I've got to deal with this and, and start again. And so this whole atonement ritual, I talked about this a few, few months ago. What happens with the atonement ritual is two animals are chosen. And one is sacrificed and its blood is sprinkled on the altar. There's a picture here to show you. Okay? One is sacrificed and its blood is sprinkled on the altar. And the other is called the scapegoat and it's sent away to carry the sins of the people away. Why am I talking about all that? That's a bit Old Testament and a bit weird. Because every year when the priest sprinkled the blood of this freshly sacrificed animal on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, where the, the place where God dwelt, every year when that happens, God hits the reset button. And he says, this is the, where the blood has paid for your sins, and now you're atoned, you're at one with me, reconciled, and we can start this thing again. And Paul presents this whole picture in the Romans, and he says, this is what's going on here. Atonement is what's going on. And it's not a goat this time, it's Jesus. The atonement sacrifice, the blood that pays for the sins, is Jesus' blood. It's that blood that's central to all of this. The blood of Jesus is what pays our debts, it wipes our slate clean, it deals with our sin, it enables us to be holy to reset and restart and come close to God again. You might have heard that phrase, washed in the blood of Jesus. It's a weird sounding phrase, isn't it? But in this context, doesn't it just make perfect sense? That it's the blood of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus that buys our freedom. It's the blood of Jesus. And before that blood of Jesus, Paul says, God demonstrated incredible patience and forbearance. In his, you see, his righteousness means that he demands justice, he needs justice, and yet it says he chose to delay dealing with people's sins until such a time as his son was able to die on the cross and deal with them once and for all. So this whole Old Testament system was kind of like a stopgap until Jesus is able to come along. God knew that one day there would be a day in history when all of this stuff was dealt with. Throughout the Old Testament, there are foreshadows of what Jesus is going to do. I've got a kid's story Bible that I read to my son sometimes. And the little tagline is, it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it says, every story whispers his name. And as you go through the Old Testament, every story kind of points ahead to some, something that will happen with Jesus. And in Jesus' incredible act of dying on a cross... Not as a human, but as God himself. He changed history. The cross is the most central and powerful point of the whole of history. And it's there because in that place, our sins were dealt with once and for all. That's what Paul is saying. That's where we start to see how the gospel really comes alive. And how it really works. That's this sparkling jewel that Paul is holding up. So what's our response to that? Because in a minute, we're going to worship together. And then we're going to celebrate communion together. What's our response to this? My response is just to kind of be incredibly grateful and thankful for everything that he's done for me.
I mean, this is my reality. I don't know about you, but I'm constantly messing up. Constantly making mistakes. Constantly putting things between me and God by sinning. It's just talk. That's, that's what it is. It's very easy, isn't it, to get weighed down by our sin. It's very easy to get kind of become very down on ourselves. Oh, I know God can forgive me, but I just really don't deserve it. Yes, that's right. We don't deserve it. Oh, but I need to come back to you and talk about this stuff again, God. No, you've been forgiven. No, 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 no. I know I've been forgiven, but I just really need to talk about this again with you because I'm feeling really bad about it. I can just imagine this conversation going on and God says, no, 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 I've forgiven you about that. I'm not thinking about it anymore. And I'm saying, no, 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 God, this is such a mess. I'm such a mess. I'm, I'm, I really need to come back to you again. And God says, no, I've forgiven you. Now go down to Costa and tell someone about Jesus. And I go, no, 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 I just need to talk about my sin again. And God says, no, I've forgiven you. Now that's not to say I need to get complacent and just go around sinning and thinking nothing of it. But I do need to live in the reality of what Jesus has done for me. It's permanently humbling. Isn't it? It's permanently humbling to think about the cross and where I stand in relation to that. And it's that that keeps me close to him. And last week I shared a word that I felt like God had shown me and it was of a blood-soaked church. I've looked it up on the internet, can't find it anywhere. Don't, don't know, I don't really, I think, it's one, I think it's one God gave me. Forgive me if I've stolen it from somebody else. Anyway, I tried to write this down. This is just my first stab. I tried to write down what I thought that meant. This is my first draft. I think it means a community of people who understand and appreciate what, God, what Jesus has done for us by his death on the cross and who are choosing to live out of that reality. And knowing who we are in him, we're humbly staying close to him. We're systematically rearranging our lives to become more like him. And we bring in the reality of his kingdom, the hope and the life that he longs to offer to people and communities all around us. I think that's what it means to be a blood-soaked church. One that never forgets what Jesus did for us and who we are in the light of that and who we're called to be. And all that we're called to do and be as followers of Jesus is to live out of that place. This gospel, this free gift of righteousness. It's only possible because of his death on the cross it cost him everything, and yet it's free to us. And uh, maybe you've seen this before, but there's just a little tool down there called the five R's. And if you're stuck in this, if you feel like you've got stuff that you, that's getting in between you and God, sorry, that's not working. Can you move that on for me? That's the scapegoat, and again. Oh, just, can you just press through all of those for me, Pete, until they all come up? Thank you. Five R's. Very simply. This is just a simple way to pray. It's not the only thing. It's Jesus who does the changing, not us. It's not words that make a difference, but the words are there as a tool or a guide. And as we pray, we've, we recognize what we've done. In fact, let's move it on because there are some... Uh, I see my sin. And you can do this in 20 seconds or you can take half an hour about it if you really want to. Sometimes it's appropriate to take more time. I see my sin. Can you move it on for me again, Pete? Thanks. I repent. I say sorry to God. I receive. I receive his forgiveness. Keep going. I rebuke the enemy because he always has a go. He's always there saying, oh, you're such a loser. 
no, I'm not believing that stuff. I'm not a loser. I've been forgiven. So I take authority and then I replace. I make a change. And then I rejoice, which is the sixth, which isn't in there. Guys, why don't you come up? Band, why don't you come and lead us? Because we'll just have a minute of quiet. And maybe, just maybe, this is something that you want to do this morning. In fact, why don't we stand together? And then the band are going to lead us. And then at the end of that worship time, we're going to have communion together. Now, it might be that you've never prayed this kind of prayer before. And maybe it's the first time for you. Or it may be that you've prayed this kind of prayer many times before and it's just an opportunity to keep short account with God. So this is how we're going to do this. Just as these guys get ready to lead us, I'm just going to pray briefly through each of these stages. I'm just going to lead us as we do that. And if you want to follow through, then you just start to think about that and you do that in your own mind. Whether it's the first time or the first time today. (laughs) So Lord, we come to you and... We recognize our sin. There is stuff that all of us have done, Lord. There is stuff that I've done today, this week, that I'm not proud of and that doesn't make you happy either. So I just want to recognize that. I own it. I name it. I'm not going to fudge the issue. I'm just going to say what it is, Lord. I'll just wait and we'll just do that. And Lord, having recognize my sin I now want to repent I want to say I'm sorry I want to bring this to you I'm so sorry that this happened I'm so sorry Lord that this got in the way of yours and my relationship I'm so sorry that it upset you and Lord I choose to receive your forgiveness. That's an active choice. I choose to receive your forgiveness. The Bible says I'm forgiven. You say I'm forgiven. You died on the cross so that I could be forgiven. All that I've talked about this morning shows how this works. And I choose to receive your forgiveness. And just allow forgiveness to flood into my heart. And the love of the Father. And at this point, I also take the opportunity to rebuke Satan, to rebuke the, de- the devil, to rebuke the enemy and say, you've got no place here, and the lies that you're telling over my life are not true, and I'm not having them. So we rebuke you in the name of Jesus too. I'm a precious child of God. He loves me. He knows me. And lastly, Lord, I, I commit to replace this with something better so I commit to change Lord help me help me work that out, help me work out what that is help me live that out I want want my life to go differently to how it's been and, and you're the answer to that Jesus you're the key to that guys we're going to worship God together and they're going to lead us and I just really encourage you to push in and give thanks and praise. Just celebrate what God's done for us. This stuff can be quite serious, but it's also just incredibly joyful when you think about what God has done. So let's allow that to be our reality for the next 15, 20 minutes or so. We'll just worship God and we'll give him, we'll push right into his presence. We'll give him everything. 
we'll give him our thanks and praise and we'll, we'll connect with him and commune with him. And then in the, as we're just, before we get to the end of this morning, we'll jump up and some of you have agreed to help serve communion. I'll call you up in, in a few minutes and we'll just do that too. Let's worship God together. Holy Spirit, thank you for your work among us. This stuff is heavy stuff and it's deep stuff, but it's so important, Lord. It's so vital that we understand what you did for us when you died on the cross, how it is that we can come and be close to you, and that we acknowledge that for ourselves. It's all about you and it's not about us, Lord. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your work among us even now. And Lord, draw us into your presence. Draw us closer to you. Lord, for those who have struggled with stuff, may this be a moment when you break through, where we understand and live in the reality of your precious blood. In Jesus' name.